Information Commission meeting to order. Pledge of Allegiance to Howard. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Have a safety minute from Jermaine Pearson, member of the safety club. I would say it's hard to cram a bunch of value information uh, in a minute, but I did what I could. <laughs> um, my safety topic for today is safety is no accident, it's a practice. I uh, got a couple of questions to ask. Do we know what hazards or disasters that can affect our areas? Do we know what emergency alerts to listen for or where to go if we have to evaluate or evacuate? Uh, September is National Preparedness Month. And so what the question is asked is, are we up to speed? Or are we just speeding through? I'll explain that in just a second. I recall back in elementary school, uh, we used to have tornado drills and fire drills. So we, as the kids, we knew where to go, how to go, what to do, when to do. And just in case somebody wasn't there, we knew who to look for. Well, safety is the same. Uh, when it comes to safety, safety is to be practiced every day to the point that it becomes common to us. Uh, and know the difference between, as I brought up just a second ago, being up to speed and being speeding through. Being up to speed is being fully informed as to what's going on around your work area, around the building. Know where exits to go to. Know what to do just in case we come into an emergency situation. And being, uh, on the other hand, speeding through, as I finish up, speeding through is the rate in which we do something, trying to care up and get done, not realizing that we put our lives at risk. So, in my closing, although none of us are perfect, uh, in safety we strive to be perfect and have perfection. That way we work safety and have safe practices. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Jermaine is uh, on our uh, safety team um, as well as he's one of our senior uh, crew leaders. So, very esteemed individual. Thank you. I'm glad you're leading the charge. Kyle <laughs> <laughs> Anderson will present his employee service award. <laughs> well, I'm, where's uh, Harold? I think you were going to take the honors on this. I'm sorry. I'll follow up. Come on up, Steve. Well, today our guest is uh, Mr. Skip Meller, and frankly, I'm not sure that anything I say today will do justice to the stature and caliber of the kind of employee and individual that he is, but I've tried to keep it as short as possible because he doesn't really like the limelight, so. <laughs> <laughs> so Skip began his career with the authority on September 30th, 1997, as a utility worker. You know, his talent, his commitment to doing great work, and his leadership were quickly identified. And over the years, through various promotions, he made his way to his current role of construction and repair manager in our collection system maintenance department, where he oversees a group of 37 employees. And he has now served in that role for the last 15 years. You know, a little over five years ago, when I started personally at the utility, what I consider to be my first real job from a career standpoint, I worked under Skip Meller as, as my supervisor. 
he guided me and gave me an opportunity to learn about some of the construction work that, work that is needed to provide sewer service to the residents of Little Rock. But what makes KIPP's characteristic is that beyond the work that we did and continue to do each day, he constantly reminded us through his example that the main reason to do, continue to do great and excellent work is because we are serving a higher purpose. His unparalleled levels of integrity, honesty, respect for others have been an inspiration for me and for all the young folks who have worked for him over the years. He is a fantastic leader to have around at this utility. And it is a great privilege for me to work with you and to call you a friend. Congratulations, brother, on 25 years of service to the utility. Skip for what 20 years, um, worked closely with him for 15. I wanted Harold to make the presentation because he's the current supervisor, but um, and my words are not probably as glamorous as Harold's are. So all I can say is you could not ask for a more dedicated employee. And I think also you're thinking about words. What came to me was rock solid. Mm. He is he is always there when you need him to be. So, Skip, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your involvement in my career as well. Thank you guys for the opportunity. Thank Congratulations. You. Is there any objection to approving the minutes of the August 17, 2022 meeting? Hearing no objection, the minutes are approved as written. Do we have any public comment cards? No, ma'am. All right, Rebecca Berkman will present on PFAS. Thank you, commission, commissioners. Um, so um, I'll be presenting on PFAS and wastewater. Um, this is an ongoing kind of hot topic in the media right now. So what is PFAS? Uh, PFAS is per and polychloroalkyl substances. These are chemical compounds that have been around for quite a while. Uh, right now, like I said, they're hot topics, but these are not new. Um, there's thousands of different types of PFAS out there. And what makes these unique is a strong fluorine to carbon bond, which is the strongest bond in organic chemistry. And because these bonds are so strong, they're environmentally persistent. They don't degrade over time, and they don't break down. Um, and research is ongoing, but it's pointing to that these compounds are human carcinogens. And we're exposed to these in lots of different products in our daily lives. And some of these include your stain and water resistant treatments like Scotchgard, Teflon cookware, really anything with waterproofing. So um, your clothes, carpets and textiles, even your takeout containers. That's why we're able to put water in a paper cup is because it has a waterproofing um, layer on it. And AFFF firefighting foams. So other sources of PFAS could, uh, could be our industrial users. 
So we don't have any use, any industries in the city of Little Rock that actually manufacture PFAS, but we do have industries that might use chemicals in their processes that contain PFAS. And these industries discharge to one of our uh, wastewater treatment facilities. We also have landfills that, like you saw in the previous slide, there's all sorts of different consumer products that could contain PFAS. And when these are done in people's homes, they go to the trash and that's sent to a landfill. And landfills discharge their leachate, which is water that accumulates at the bottom of landfills. And leachate is sent to wastewater treatment facilities. So whenever it comes to us, we treat, uh, we treat it in two ways. Our treated, the liquid fraction is treated and is sent back into the receiving stream. And then we have the solids portion, which here at the utility, we dispose of that through land application. This is a beneficial use of our biosolids because this material has a lot of really great nutrients and is a valuable resource for farmers. Other methods of disposal include incineration, which is kind of on the opposite spectrum of being environmental stewards. It's very uh, energy intensive. Then you have to deal with um, air emissions and then the permitting process associated with that. You can even landfill biosolids, which is more of a neutral option, but why waste this valuable material when we can put it to beneficial use? So this slide, I want to start by pointing out that this is in uh, parts per trillion units. So that's equivalent to a single grain of sand in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So at the top, um, we see this large number, up to 876 million parts per trillion PFAS in our food packaging. Um, and then we've got dust, carpet, lipstick, mascara, even foundation can have up to 10.5 million parts per trillion. And at the very bottom is biosolids. So what I really want to point out in this slide is right now there's a lot of talk about PFAS in biosolids. But what people don't realize is we're exposed to this in all sorts of, um, all sorts of methods. And especially when you look at that, that number 27,000, that might sound like a lot, but when you put that into perspective and you compare that to food packaging, which is 876 million parts per trillion, it really gives you an idea of what we're actually looking at. So one of the tricky things with PFAS is there's not a great way to test for it. Right now in wastewater, there is no approved method for testing PFAS. Um, and the other methods in drinking water and solid waste, those are approved. But one thing I want to highlight is these can only test for 40, 29, 24 different types of PFAS. And if you remember from the first slide, there's thousands of different compounds in this, in this family. So really what this, it shows we can only see a very small amount of what we're actually dealing with. So in other states, um, this is a issue that each state is kind of addressing uh, uniquely. There is no federal guidance right now, it's ongoing. Um, so this, the states are kind of each doing their own thing. So Maine, um, for a while they actually banned biosolids land application. And this was a fear-based action that they made this decision without having all of the facts. Um, and then we see states like Michigan that are taking a very, you know, they're leading the charge in PFAS. Um, they do require PFAS testing for land application and they've issued limits for that, for land app. 
and they focus on source reduction initiatives, and they've seen a lot of progress by taking that approach. And then Wisconsin's another great state that is really focusing on the science before they're taking action. So what does that mean for us? So Arkansas has not issued any limits for PFAS and wastewater. They're really kind of taking a backseat approach to, um, to wait and see what the federal government is going to issue. Uh, but they, the federal government, through the bipartisan infrastructure law, they have allocated money to the states to fund emergent studies for emerging contaminants. And so we're applying for some of that funding. So we want to know, do we have PFAS in our system? If we do, how much? Do we have any major industries that are contributing to that? And we plan on doing that, answering those questions by a multi-phase study, which would start with looking at our industrial users, followed by doing a deep dive into our treatment plants and our biosolids. One of the reasons we want to do this is so that we can communicate to farmers and the public. So whenever we uh, land apply biosolids, we're reliant on our, our partnership with farmers to use that land for disposal. So we need to be able to answer any questions they have, and if they have any concerns, try to ease those a bit. And same with communication to the public. Uh, there, there's a lot of um, information out there that's really based on fear, and so being able to inform our residents uh, of what's actually going on is very important to us. So um, how do we want to tackle this? Really the best way is source reduction. And we can't go into people's homes and tell them, no, you can't use Teflon and you can't use Scotchgard. But what we can do is we can look at our industrial users. And we have authority with our industrial pretreatment program to set limits and require pretreatment before it's discharged to the collection system. And really with that, it's easier and more efficient to treat a high concentration, low volume, than it is to allow all of the discharge from the whole city to dilute that and then have to treat a small amount in a, a very large volume. So right now there's um, several well-respected <coughs> organizations that have done some research, and what they've found is that when the states do impose limits for PFAS, the uh, capital and O&M costs really skyrocket. And so I want to make sure that we are aware that when we look out at five and 10 years in the future, that this is something that we'll have to be mindful of. Um, and also, uh, wastewater industry groups, they're really pushing for a CERCLA exemption for wastewater utilities. So if uh, PFAS is designated as a hazardous substance, Without a CERCLA exemption, we could be responsible for any uh, environmental cleanups related to contamination. So essentially, as a wastewater facility, we are at the mercy of whatever is sent down the pipe to us, and we treat it and send it out. So we don't generate <coughs> any PFAS. Um, so essentially, we don't produce it, and we should not be responsible for it. And with that, I'll take any questions that anybody has. Tell me again what BIL funding is. Bipartisan infrastructure law. Okay. Okay. So when did the metric go from parts per million to parts per trillion? 
That's and what's that multiple? Because it's it's like a thousand times more right. sensitive, right? Right. Than parts per million. Right. I'm doing my math. Right. So, so if you look at if you look at uh, you know the we, we talked about an Olympic size swimming pool is really one grain in an Olympic size swimming pool full of sand. That's one part per trillion. That that's really what what we're trying to say as far as size goes. So right. uh, the the difficulty with this is. We know it's there, the science is still trying to catch up to determine how to test for it, uh, and not only how to be able, you know, what, what, to, what to look for. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces here, but I think it's important for us to take a proactive approach. Um, as Rebecca stated, <clears throat> if we can reduce it coming into our facility, we're just gonna save money in the long run, and I, it's just, it's important for us to do that. And I wanted to add, <clears throat> Well, Rebecca and our operations team are looking at this and, and really talking with their colleagues across the country about what's happening on the technical level. I am working with colleagues and government relations and legal staff um, across the country keeping tabs on what's happening at the state level um, as this is progressing as well as what's happening at the federal level because we do expect some federal legislation. So it's, we're, we're, this, this topic is probably the number one topic across the industry nationwide. And commissioners, we're also, um, I've got, I think, two, two meetings already scheduled with our congressional delegation to talk specifically about this and the impact to all wastewater utilities in the state. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just concerned that it's, it's, it's an article coming out every day on feedback. It's a new story out yep. every day on feedback. So our, our attempt to get ahead of the curve and our education of the public, so. I think that's arming them with facts. And so I see that we're going to do some studies and we're looking at those things. What more from a customer education? Are we looking at we waiting to get the facts back before we educate them? Or are we going to let them know something that ahead of time that we're, we're doing that? To make so, sure they know we're so one of the things, and I don't know, Kanita, you want me, one of the things we want to do is actually our website to be able to have a pretty robust part of the website that talks about the PFAS and what it is. Uh, the myths and, and, and everything else. The unfortunate part is until the study is done, we won't have information on what we can put in for us. I think that just some of the information we just shared may yep. be beneficial for the general communities to know about that so we can damper or tamper now rather that fear that's out there. Because I mean, as we know with media, they're running with it. I mean, seriously, I'm getting articles daily still about PFAS too. So just this may be something that we could do to maybe get ahead of the curve as we're waiting on information to come in. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Great report. Thank you. Well, Tommy Wallace will present a resolution for financing of emergency funds. Good afternoon, commissioners. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I appreciate Rebecca giving the presentation on PFAS. Her presentation and it's a good introduction into what our request is here with the resolution of signatory authority on emerging contaminants. And I'm not using PFAS, but I'm using emerging contaminants because contaminants that typically are not regulated under current environmental laws. So you could do multiple studies on other things other than just PFAS if you really wanted to. So what is a resolution of signatory authority? It, you know, it designates a signatory agent for Little Rock Water Reclamation Authority that those who are on 
that are signatory agents, they are allowed to execute the funding application that we would submit to Arkansas Natural Resource Commission. It would also allow them to sign and accept the loan agreement if made. But the one important thing to know is before we would sign any loan agreements, we would be back before this commission asking for a resolution of intent, which would identify the amount of the loan. So why do we need the resolution of signatory authority now? As stated before, with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, there was a piece in that law to allow money to fund emerging contaminants and for water and wastewater. So within Arkansas wastewater side, we were, they're allowing $612,000 a year for five years towards emerging contaminants. And this could possibly be 100% principal forgiveness loan. What will happen, we have to have this resolution of signatory authority to submit with an application to Arkansas Natural Resource Commission. The commission will meet in November, and at that time they will determine if we are approved and if it is 100% principal forgiveness. So we are able to keep that application and requesting that funding at that time and move forward, or we could pull it back if we wanted to. But we have to have this resolution of signatory authority to go with the funding application to the commission at Arkansas Natural Resources. Are there any questions? I'm just curious how long you think the study would take. It says 612,000 a year for five years. Do we think it will take five years to complete the study? No, the 612,000, that's the money that for Arkansas, any entity, wastewater entity in Arkansas can request some of these funds and that's the only amount they're allowing for the whole state. So it, it's a small portion um, of grant funding. So multiple utilities oh, yeah. are multiple right. We're the first to have requested funding for this. As a matter of fact, I have conversations with the A&RD. Um, they were very interested in wanting to, to help. So how long do we think it will take? Do you think any other? So if we found next year that we wanted to go into some more studies, we could apply again when the next group of 612,000 is available next year for five years. You could do that each year if you wanted to. Do we have a specific thought about exactly what we're looking for, or is there some idea of what possibly could be an emergency? No, so, we're, so our goal, again, is to concentrate, I think, it's going to be on the give or take 40 of the 1,000 in it. And because that's the only thing right now that science is able to do. Um, but of those 40, our goal is to first start off with what is our industry doing? Is there anything within the, the our industry that's adding to it? So if we find one that has a spike, how do we work with that particular industry to reduce it before it gets into our system? And then the second part is, what does, it, what does it look like once it reaches our facility? So if you look at it, there's so many, so many things that, that, that have bass in them. 
that by the time it gets to us, it's, it's combined. And so what does that look like? And then at the end, what does our effluent look like as well as what does our, um, what does our fire product look like? Any more questions? Yes, but I'm going to save us the time and think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, staff is requesting commission to adopt the resolution of signatory authority that must be submitted with the emerging contaminants funding application to Arkansas Natural Resource Commission. Did I hear a motion to that effect? So moved. Second. I moved. Any other questions? All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion passes. Thank you. Okay, yeah, so we're having a hard time hearing online, so everybody just speak up a little bit <laughs> so everybody can get the information. I'll try to do the same. John Holloway and Les Price will present a professional services contract for the Highway 10 Sewer Main Relocation Project. Thank you, Chairman Bride. Commissioners, I would like to open this agenda item by introducing a couple of new faces that we have in engineering. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce stand-up Terrian, Mr. Terrian Tyler. Pleasure to meet you all. Hello. Nice to meet you. Mr. Tyler uh, joined us back in December, and I haven't had the opportunity to introduce you, uh, him to you in person, but he joined us in December. He's part of the developer-funded uh, uh, group that, for engineering, and he will be working on this project as well. Uh, University of Arkansas graduate and uh, loves everything uh, hogs, hog-related. We spend we'll a bit of time <laughs> on Monday mornings talking. So, uh, uh, welcome to Tarion, and this is the uh, Little Rock Water Reclamation Commission. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. I would also like to introduce uh, Mr. Les Price. He's also from the University of Arkansas. In fact, this is his second job out of college. His first 31 years, he spent with Christ Engineers, a local consulting firm, has worked with us in, on previous projects. And uh, the last month, he's worked, uh, he's worked with us. So he joined our staff in August, and we're extremely happy and very fortunate to have him. So with that, Chair McBride, I'd like to yield the podium to Mr. Price and make this presentation. Absolutely. Thank you, and welcome. welcome. Thank you. As, as John said, I actually uh, worked on a couple of projects uh, for Water Reclamation Authority several years ago, and I had the pleasure of working with John and uh, Tanya Carrie Beth and, and Quentin, and I was just really, as a, as a consultant, I was just really impressed at the assistance that they gave me as a consultant, their professionalism, uh, and just the organization of Water Reclamation Authority as a whole. So I'm extremely excited to, to be a part of the team now. So I'm here this afternoon to uh, recommend, recommend an award for professional services, uh, in particular, to request approval of the professional services contract with Garber for design, bid, and construction administration phases of the Arkansas Highway 10 gravity sewer main relocation project, which is from Taylor Loop Road to Pleasant Ridge Road. And I do uh, would like to introduce Paul Strickland. He is with Garber here. He will be the project manager uh, if y'all approve this request uh, for Garber. I actually competed against 
Paul for work for many years, so it's going to be nice to get a chance to work with him, hopefully. So, uh, next, uh, just to give you a little background, uh, this is the, the second phase of relocations associated with uh, widening along Highway 10. Phase 1 was for the Water Reclamation Authority was completed in December of 2021. This slide just shows you uh, basically the project area. Uh, basically, we're going from Pre uh, Pleasant Ridge Town Center, which is uh, right around Pleasant Ridge Road, uh, along Highway 10 down to the Good Earth Garden Center. Uh, we just gave you a couple other landmarks just so you get, uh, might have a better idea of exactly the project area. The blue outline is the project area. This slide just kind of shows you our assets within the project area. As you can see, uh, we have uh, mains all along uh, Highway 10 from Taylor Loop to Pleasant Ridge. There's approximately 13,400 feet of uh, mains and ranging in diameter from 8 to 18 that could possibly be, possibly, uh, be affected. <clears throat> so the professional services contract that, that uh, Garver uh, would be a part of is uh, there's three phases, design phase, bid phase, and construction phase. In the design phase, They'll survey, take some field measurements uh, to figure out what needs to be relocated. Uh, if there's any easements that need to be prepared, they will uh, uh, prepare those and then they'll prepare the bid documents. That's all in the design phase. Uh, once that's completed, we'll move to the bid phase. They'll conduct a pre-bid conference. Uh, any type of addendums that need to go out during the bid phase, they'll prepare those. We'll have a bid opening. <coughs> And after the uh, bid opening, we'll uh, make a recommendation of award, or they will make a recommendation of award to uh, the commission for a contractor. Uh, and then following the bid phase, we move to construction phase, where they will perform construction administration services, such as pay requests, uh, monthly meetings, things like that, and then uh, full-time uh, inspection during construction. So just the steps of the process that we'll go through uh, to, to this afternoon, we're asking for approval of the professional services contract with Garver. And if the commission approves that request, we'll move to the design phase. Uh, that's where they'll figure out <clears throat> what needs to be relocated and prepare the drawings. Uh, following the design phase, we move to the, the bid phase. Uh, we'll advertise open bids and then we'll come back to the commission uh, requesting approval to award uh, a contract for construction, and then we move into the construction phase. And just to kind of give you an idea, all uh, projects, uh, RDOT projects, that are, uh, widening type projects, uh, if your infrastructure is outside of the right, the existing right away, then they will reimburse you to move those facilities. Um, where I kind of looked at the our, our mains, and I'm a, I kind of a, a estimated about 10 to 15 percent uh, could be reimbursed. Uh, it looked like it was outside of the right of way, and we're we're estimated the po total project cost to be around five million. We think this is probably a worst case scenario. So. 
Any questions? Well, I think we've got a relationship. Uh -huh. yeah, is, is the, uh, I'm not sure I understood the statement. Is the reimbursement only 10 to 15%? Or is it if it's affected and it's inside the right of way? Okay, how it works is we go through the design. We'll, we'll determine what is inside the existing right of way and what is outside. Then you decide what has to be actually relocated. It can, it can be inside that it's deep enough that you don't have to relocate it or do anything to it. So once you do that, then you go through what needs to be relocated, and you and you look at it and you measure what length is inside the right of way, existing right of way, and what was outside, and that's how you determine your percentage. And, uh, so once you get that percentage that's what they reimburse the utility for for everything so if it was a hundred percent within the right away then you would get zero reimbursement if it was hundred percent outside of the right away existing right away then you would get a hundred percent reimbursement yeah the, the last the, the first phase I think we had a lot more outside and, and I think we were able to receive a lot more money from a guy I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we were very fortunate. We, were, we ended up at about 60% reimbursement, if I remember right, um, last time. And, you know, it can be, a lot of times it just depends on where their road improvements were done in the past. Some of the, if you have your own easement, if your line is located within your own easement and, and then they took the right of way after that, then you're good. But if, if you didn't have your own easement and you're within their right of way, you're at their mercy when it comes time to relocate it. And then, No, that RDOT, you, well, there was a little bit of, there's a little stretch so around Pleasant start. Ridge okay. to Sam Peck that was kind of in both of them. That's usually transitions, you know. The, uh, so they're going to be able to seal up the road and we're not going to go back in? Well, oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. We will be, all, we will move our stuff, everybody, with all utilities okay. will move their yeah. facilities prior to the highway department coming in with their contractors. I was only reacting to the bubble area that's still in front of the, the mall. Right, right. There is a, there's a little overlap between the last project and this project. And it's just the transition of the end of one project and the beginning of another. So it seems like they're getting pretty close it keeps changing. I live in Wyoming, just living through all that. Absolutely. I mean, that said, it's like the great bottleneck of, of Little Rock. So, I mean, it's got to be done. Yeah. More questions? All right. So, staff is requesting uh, the commission to authorize. CEO Greg Ramone to negotiate and execute the professional services contract with Garber for design, bid, and construction administration phases of the Highway 10 uh, from Taylor Loop Road to Pleasant Ridge Road, Gravity Sewer Main Relocation in, amount, in an amount not to exceed 735000 This is an hourly contract, and that's how RDOT makes you do it. It's an hourly contract, and that is the not to exceed amount. Okay, do I hear a motion? So moved. Second? Second. Any other questions? 
All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Good afternoon and thank you. We are almost nine months into our array into the self-funded healthcare world. We've learned a lot and uh, I'm here today to kind of tell you where we are through August 31st and I'll just lead it off by saying so far uh, it's it looks like a really good decision for us and um, you know at the same time find some wood and knock on it because healthcare costs can change in an instant but through the first eight months, it's, it's been, I think it's working really well for us, and we'll walk through some of, of what it looks like. So roughly a year ago, towards the end of the year, the commission authorized us to establish a reserve of $800,000. We moved it out of our general operating funds and set up the reserve account. That was just meant to kind of be a buffer. We don't touch that money. It's got a little bit of interest. It'll continue to gain interest. We are funding an operating account in addition to the reserve. And um, all told, at the end of August, the total of those two accounts is $1,582,000. And I'll talk a little bit about how we got there in the operating account on the next slide. I don't want to necessarily walk through all these numbers other than to say that we are funding the health care plan at $3.6 million. So each month, we collect premiums from our employees and our retirees in the neighborhood of $54,000, $55,000 a month. And each month, we, the utility, transfers roughly $240,000 into this operating account, so roughly $300,000 a month. Over the course of the year, we're funding at $3.6 million. So if our health care costs are at $3.6 million or less, we'll uh, do well. If they're above that, we'll possibly need to dip into the reserve. And um, so far, I'm happy to report, and you'll see that we're running well below. So the, the next section of numbers, the medical claims, the pharmacy claims, and recoveries from our stop loss, our net claims paid for the first eight months are $1.2 million. Our total deposits into the account above were $2.4 million. And our administrative fees are up half a million dollars. And administrative fees include the monthly fee we pay to the third-party administrator, relatively insignificant in the big scheme of things out of that 500000 The monthly or the, or the per prescription fee we pay to our pharmacy benefit manager, the PBM, the largest component of our administrative fees is our stop-loss insurance premium, which kicks in when uh, medical claims for an individual go over the deductible amount. And um, also fees that we pay to payer matrix. Payer matrix is an extension, basically, of our pharmacy benefit manager, and they seek alternative funding for our employees and the utility for, spe for specialty high-cost drugs. We've got a few people out of our total population that, um, that are in the payer matrix program. We pay payer matrix a percentage of the savings that we would otherwise, that we incur by not having to pay full price for those high-cost medicines. So, we started the year with 180,000 in this account. We added 2,348,000 in the first eight months in deposits. We had net claims paid of 1.2 million, administrative fees through August of 532,000, 
that's how we get to our $780,000 balance in the operating account exclusive of the $800,000 in the reserve. And I've also got on this slide just a reminder, not in these numbers, is that we paid employees HSA contributions at the beginning of the year totaling $320,000. So that's up and beyond the money that we're talking about here today, but just all in health care costs. I think another important point to remember is when we were looking at staying fully insured a year ago, our quote for renewal with Blue Cross Blue Shield was a 19% increase compared to where we were, which would have been $3.9 million. If we had stayed fully insured, our total medical cost this year would be roughly $3.9 million. By going self-insured through August with the data I've shown you, it projects out to total claims and admin fees of about $2.9 or $3 million. Now, that's just a projection based on what we've seen in the first eight months. That could change, but I think between where we're funding, 3.6 million, and where we're projecting right now of 2.9 to 3 million, you know, we've got some headroom there for some unforeseen circumstances. So, all in all, a lot of numbers, a lot of data, but financially, we're well under, appear to be running well under where we would have been had we stayed fully insured and we're on pace to end the year with less than 3.6 million, which is our funding level, which means we'll end the money with, you know, year in our operating health care <coughs> account to carry forward, which is really where you want to be. And Chairwoman, um, Bright Commissioners, so so last year when Blue Cross and Blue Shield um, said that it was going to be a 19% increase, obviously that's when we went into the self-funded. Um, we did not. Uh, increased the rates to our employees last year. Um, and so um, even with that, you can see that we're in a, we're in a pretty, good, pretty good place um, with that. What we did do is we made some structural changes to our, uh, our health care plans. And so I think we're seeing some of the benefit of that as well. Correct. Well, you Chair, it might be the biggest piece there with the claims of anticipate. I, I guess that did we just in Anticipate more or did uh, with that, that budget that was created or did it just that was it healthy? I mean, what are, we, are you what talking are about the difference between the 3.6 million and where we're coming in at three? Mm -hmm. Well, the the projection from the actuary was about 3.2 million, mm -hmm. but we were um, it was recommended to us by our insurance broker that you always put about a 12% cushion on that because it's just an actuarial projection. So. The 3.2 million times 1.12 is 3.6 million. So we're coming in pretty close to where they projected based on where we're running right now. So the difference is just that that fudge factor that we put in in, in addition at, at their at their advice. Their yeah, I think the other thing, Michael, is that uh, um, we're seeing some pretty substantial savings in our prescription portion of the. My last question is just how is the overall program for the employees? I guess this is more of your grade. Those are the next two slides. Oh, okay, okay. Thank you, Commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> because clearly the financial impact is one important component, sure. but the other is how is it, how do people perceive what we've offered and what they're getting? So recently, all we had was anecdotal information until last month. Our Human Resources Department sent out a short survey asking our employees um, to provide some feedback about their experiences with United Healthcare and our TPA UMR, as well as our Pharmacy Benefit Manager Magellan. 
So we asked 188 employees to provide feedback on their experiences, and we got 77 total responses. And out of those 77 total responses, 44 provided additional comments concerning the healthcare side of it, the health portion, the medical side of it, and 39 provided additional comments on the prescription side. The majority of the responses were either favorable, they had limited experience, or they had no comment. We did have a few concerns, and those are on the next slide. There were six responses that were critical of our plan design. Comments like our premiums are too high, our deductibles are too high, and out-of-pocket requirements are too high. So really they have nothing to do with the fact that we went self-funded or that we chose United Healthcare. Um, these comments would be in place even if we had stayed fully insured with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and maybe even more so because we would have had a 19% increase. And as Greg said, we, we wouldn't have been able to hold premiums flat with a 19% increase. There were five responses that were somewhat critical of UMR and United Healthcare. They ranged from claim denials that eventually got sorted out to there were two instances where uh, the employees said that their physicians actually were critical of United Healthcare and the difficulty to get reimbursed and the fact that they didn't pay them enough and so forth. Um, and then there were a few comments where people just had general perceptions that Blue Cross Blue Shield was better, but there was no additional information provided as to what they meant by that. So, you know, out of our 800, uh, 188 employees and our 212 total covered employees and retirees, we've got a handful of um, concerning negative experiences. Um, so, you know, is that a good news, bad news story? Obviously, it's better that it's, it's good that there weren't more, but there's still, you know, you don't, you, you like to see a clean bill of slate there. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to, to, to achieve. There was one response that was critical of our specialty drug program. This really was um, at the beginning of the rollout of the program. They, they got involved with us in February and, um, you know, there were communication pieces mailed to those people who who, who our specialty drug provider was aware was on those, on those specialty drugs. Um, but I think there was a process kind of confused as to what it took to get enrolled. One of the things that, that happens if you're needing a specialty drug, you qualify for grants that are given by the, the um, pharmacy companies, the pharmaceutical companies. And the reason they offer these programs is so that they don't have to lower their costs in Medicare, which would lower their costs other places. So in order to see if you, um, if you apply or if you, if you will be accepted for these grants, oftentimes they'll ask for tax information. You may have to provide a tax return. It's all handled outside of us. It's handled directly with payer matrix. We're not involved at all. There's a little bit of a hurdle, but the savings are significant. So it's something worthwhile for so us. Was the was Magellan Specialty Pharmacy providing the drugs, or was on the specialty, or was, or was Payer Matrix? Payer Matrix. Okay. It goes through Payer so Matrix. We, we have Magellan at our company, and then one yeah. of the big things was my, my daughter's on a specialty drug, and we had to go through their right. Magellan Specialty Pharmacy, and they didn't really, there was some initial deal, but it works fine now. And I think that's what happened yeah. here. I mean, they said eventually this all got straightened out and they didn't miss any medications or anything like that, but they, they did point out that there's a little bit of a mix-up. And then there was one complaint of a delayed prescription, which if you read the complaint, it 
it looks like it was caused by just a miscommunication between some combination of Magellan, the physician, and the pharmacy. Um, and then overall, with regards to the pharmaceuticals, there were roughly an equal number of people who, who think that they're paying a little bit more for their prescriptions, but there's some, probably an equal number, who think that they're paying a little bit less. So puts and takes across the board on our pharmacy program. Overall, I think we're pleased with the results. We're always concerned um, about what people think about the cost of healthcare and um, the out-of-pockets, and we're trying to find the right balance continually with the, the utility and our employees, and I think, you know, right now we're in a pretty good place. So, so Commissioner, I, you know, I, I guess one of the things I'd say, maybe it's a pessimistic view, but uh, the healthcare costs that we have now are the cheapest costs we're ever going to have. That's, it's an unfortunate statement, but the reality is healthcare just seems to continue to go up. Um, I do want to say, and, and Mike, maybe you can add a little more, um, the RHR group worked very closely with these folks, and we continue to do so, but the, also the Stevens group now has another uh, another uh, place that we can, can also call. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, our broker, Stevens, is who, who we use. They have a, they've set up a call center, so if our employees are having any question about an explanation of benefits or something their physician is telling them, um, they can call the Stevens call center instead of calling United Healthcare, which... You know, from what I've told, I think that the majority of responses United Healthcare has been good at processing claims. They come pretty quick. They're timely. I haven't heard of any any delays um, to speak of. That doesn't mean they're not happening, but I'm not aware of any significant. And um, and and people have also said that when they've had to call, they're they've been helpful. But we have a, a secondary call center, and that's something that Stevens has recently set up. So our 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 employees and their dependents have a local number that they can call, uh, call and talk to somebody about whatever they might be experiencing and get directed to the right place. So when you say that the majority had a favorable response, are we talking about like 55% or 80%? I don't need an exact number, but was it like a vast majority that are favorable towards the change? Well, there's probably assumptions there. You know, we asked 188 employees and we had 77 responses and and here's the critical responses. So just using that math and assuming that the 111 that didn't respond are likely either neutral or positive <clears throat> because if they were negative, they they would have hopefully responded to the survey. I think I think when I say the majority, I'm, you know, there's a little bit of a assumptive clause there that those we didn't hear from are either content or they don't have an opinion. Is there, so here at, at Wastewater, is there someone, where do they go if they have a complaint? Straight to Steven, straight to you? Human resources. Human resources. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. So, so there's different avenues they can go right. to, and obviously <clears throat> the first one should be with us. Yeah. And, and our HR manager, Naomi uh, Roundtree, she knows that this issue is important to the senior management team, and, and, and she is keeping us abreast of the comments and the feedback that she's hearing, even, even separate from the survey. Yeah, and I think what she, what she is hearing most often is the cost of health care right. and people's concerns with the cost of health care, as opposed to any specific concerns that someone might be having with our providers. Okay. Any other questions on that? Okay. Thank you so much for the Sure. Hey, uh, 
Yes. From, so here's our financial update for August. And late uh, in the middle of last week, roughly a week ago, utility, utility actually hit 600 days without a time loss accident or injury. So, you know, Tree was in here earlier talking about safety. He's one of the leaders. There's a bunch of them in our utility. Our people do a really good job. This is dangerous work, and 600 days is a significant accomplishment. So, and Michael, I just want to say that uh, I was talking to <coughs> Sheree, and she's our, our, our safety um, our supervisor. And 600 days equates to about a million man hours or people hours, if you will, um, of, of safe work. So that's a, that's a big number. We'll find out next month because we've asked the state to look into that to make sure that we get a, a nice award. Yeah, they present an award, and we're, so we've applied for it, and hopefully we'll be able to present that future commission meeting. All right, so significant August events financially. The story really continues to be much the same. We've um, overachieved on revenue for the month of August by about $560,000. Year to date, we're $2.2 million over budget. I think it's driven by two things. Um, one, it's driven by strong industry. Our non-domestic revenues continue to outpace our budget. And two, you know, looking back, probably some conservative budgeting as we were still coming out of the pandemic. And um, we weren't 100% sure that what we were seeing at the tail end of last year was going was gonna to stay, but it has. And so, you know, that, that's, that's a good thing for us. And, and to compound that good thing, our operating expenses continue to run under budget. So uh, they're $19.4 million year to date, which is 800000 almost 900000 below our budget. And um, in the month of August, they were basically right on budget at 2.8 million. So you can see here, the, the red is the non-domestic assessments. You can see that that's really the biggest component of our favorable revenue variance, that in, in, in combination with probably conservative budgeting. And our operating expenses, again, right on budget. There were some puts and takes there. We continue to run under on salaries and benefits, you know, primarily just because we, while we try to get back up to full staffing, we, we're, and we're making significant inroads on that, you know, we still have a number of open positions at any given time. Um, supplies were slightly over budget, as were contract services. Consumption. Um, again, this was a huge topic three years ago when, when consumption was falling all the way across the board. The pandemic uh, righted those numbers of all the you know, bad things that happened in the pandemic. Their, the water usage was, was uh, I guess, a good thing for, for us. And um, so if you look at the rolling 12-month averages, uh, which would be um, August of 2022 back through um, September of 2021, our domestic is just uh, increased about one and a half percent, but our non-domestic, which is again driving our revenue favorability, is uh, is is a seven, almost a seven percent increase in consumption on the twelve-month rolling average. I I think that what's driving that is businesses have continued to open and rebound and um, hire, and you know people are getting out, spending money, and. Businesses are doing well. Um, it's yeah, really the only thing. That was a spike in July on our non-domestic. 
think that was driven by um, an issue with uh, a large industry. And basically, it's just their water usage which then drives the sewer charge. From a cash flow perspective, um, we've got 74.9 million, just under 75 million in the bank at the end of August, of which the vast majority is in our operating reserve, 66.2 million. Uh, we're required to have a reserve of 9.4 million. Obviously, we're running well above that. And from a debt perspective, our outstanding debt at the end of August is 392 million up slightly from the end of July, and our interest expense continues to run about a million dollars a month. Questions? Okay. The final thing I want to mention is, and we've talked about this before, but just a reminder, we've been continuing to talk with ANRD about restructuring debt to flatten out what we call our, you know, that hump or, or the debt cliff, if you will, when we get out to 2037, our, our debt service costs drop significantly. What we would like to do is reduce those costs from 2024 through 2037, which will cause probably an increase from 2038 on to get a flatter line so that as we go forward, we can continue to borrow money to fund uh, the majority of our capital program, and we can do so, uh, and if we can accomplish that, we can do that with, without significantly raising rates. We'll still likely need rate increases before the end of the decade, but they would be higher if we can't make inroads with this refinancing than they otherwise would be. So um, our discussions with ANRD have been very productive. And we hope to be back before this commission possibly next month with a specific plan uh, for approval. But they're, they're working very well with us, as they always have. And that's it. Okay, thank you. Jean Blosh will present the legal update. Yes, uh, on the litigation, uh, no new litigation to report. That was a good thing. Um, still in a holding pattern uh, on the Court of Appeals with their ruling on the one pending case. Uh, and other business, uh, working on contracts, working uh, on garnishments, uh, working with the teams that report up to me on budget items, um, as well as working with our HR manager and our leadership development program. Thank you. All right, Chairman Bright, uh, Commissioners, I uh, want to start off by saying um, as part of our Community of Champions effort, our team worked with the JA Fair with the K through 8 Preparatory Academy teachers regarding students' first day of school and uh, their orientation. Staff uh, helped students show uh, by showing them where to go as well as uh, having them understand their schedule. So we, we, we tried to help out out there. We also attended a Latino back to school event uh, and served breakfast to the teachers at Carver Steam uh, Elementary School. Did that as well. And then finally, we had our annual school supply drive. Employees donated $660 that we used to purchase needed supplies, not only for the teachers, but for the students. Uh, both schools are, are part of uh, LRWIA's partnership in education, and we look forward to working uh, with them throughout the year. 
Uh, and I want to say a big thanks to our um, our staff. What's the second school? Uh, Carver. Yep. Okay. Uh, recently, we had uh, certified public manage manager graduates Tanya Wallace and Kanita Ridgel. Uh, they went back and shared their experiences uh, of the program uh, by serving on a panel uh, with incoming participants. So uh, they, they they really liked the program and they were talking about uh, the, the things that they learned, which uh, which were really good. Um, for the past two years, LRWRA has uh, partnered with Dr. Uh, Silva of the National Center for uh, Toxicology Research, um, and it's really to, to, to test for wastewater influence, uh, and this was the, the COVID testing. Um, if you recall, we talked about that. Um, wastewater surveillance uh, paired with healthcare reporting has shown to be a useful tool in the early outbreak detection for epidemiologists. Uh, Dr. Silva's research uh, was published in the Journal of Science of Total Environment. So, I want to say that. Um, last Sunday, if you were hungry and you were downtown, you were probably at the uh, Food Truck Festival. Uh, we participated in the annual Food Truck, uh, Little Rock Food Truck Festival with a booth where we distributed hand sanitizer and wet wipes. Uh, Want to make sure that folks had clean hands when they were eating, and let me just say, uh, the attendees, uh, there were long lines, but the attendees were really, really hungry. Mm -hmm. uh, we also wanted to make sure that uh, they did not dispose of the wipes uh, in the toilet, and so even the wipes themselves said, do not flush, throw in the trash. Um, also wanted to say that uh, the Arkansas Water Works uh, and Water Environmental Association took a tour of our facility at the Adamsfield Water Reclamation Facility to see the recent upgrades. And if you recall, that's the facility that just went, uh, uh, had just completed a $30 million project where, where I think we're probably one of the only ones uh, in the country that, that uh, have the, the type of filtration system that we've got at that facility. So they were really excited uh, to take a look at that. Um, September is Hunger uh, Action Month. Uh, in partnership with the Arkansas Hunger Relief Alliance, team members harvested 500 pounds of eggplants uh, from the Weston Hills Community Garden. The eggplants will be distributed to various food pantries. This is just another way uh, folks give back to the community. And I will say I am not a fan of eggplants, but uh, 500 pounds of eggplants will go a long, long way. Um, I want to say that there will be an advertisement for professional services to perform the multi-phase uh, PFAS study that Rebecca Burks uh, presented earlier. The study will ev evaluate Little Rock uh, Industries to determine discharge concentrations. The study will also sample the influent uh, from the three treatment plants as well as the effluent and uh, the uh, biosolids uh, concentration. And then um, a recent project at the Adamsfield Water Reclamation Facility, and if you recall, we were asking for an additional uh, connection to Entergy's uh, um, line, and we received that. We have a we have a generator there that we used to use as a backup, which we don't need anymore, but we certainly can use it at the first treatment plant. Um, so we're going to be coming to you to have uh, our contractor uh, relocate that facility, including installing the uh, pad as well as wiring and switchgear and things that. And Chairwoman McBride, those are my highlights. If there are no questions, I can continue with uh, what our proposed October uh, items are. All right, so uh, the big one obviously will be the 2023 budget presentation, and uh, we look forward to presenting that to you. 
I will say that staff has worked extremely hard on this and has been extremely responsible. Um, so we look forward to, uh, to presenting the budget to you. Uh, we uh, Potential Arkansas Natural Resources uh, Division uh, refinancing. Michael talked about uh, we're working with them to determine. Uh, we're hoping to be able to present something to you uh, next month um, as far as what we think will be favorable to us. Also, Kanita will talk about our low-income household water assistance program. Uh, the important thing there is how many folks we've been able to work to, to help on, uh, on payments that they've been in the rear on both their water and wastewater. So we want to give you sort of a highlight on where we're at with that. Also, we're going to request uh, authorization to replace two roofs on two of the buildings at the Forest Creek Water Reclamation Facility. Um, and there is a request to provide sewer service to one development that's outside the city of Little Rock, which we would like for you to consider. Because it's outside the city of Little Rock, it does come before the city commission, and then from there goes to, goes to the city board. And so that's what our intent is. And Chairwoman McBride, commissioners, that's what I have. Fabulous, thank you. Any old business? New business? Our next meeting is October 19th, 2022. Is there any objection to adjourning the meeting? Hearing none, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you all.